0: Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best selling book, Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by ICON Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 5th, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Caroline Hartley joins us to talk about a new way to tell if babies are in pain by measuring electric activity in their brains. And finally, Katherine Matisik is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. We're still getting free transcripts from Scribby.com, so please let us know if you find it useful. A special thanks to Scribby.com, S-C-R-I-B-I-E.com. Audio transcription perfected. 75 cents a minute and 99% accuracy. The best deal on the internet for audio transcription. Now we have Katherine Matisik, editor for our daily news site. She's here to talk about some recent online stories. Okay, Katherine, first up we have a story on mapping 10,000 faces. Let's just start with something that maps your face now. Do you have Snapchat on your phone? Should I tell you the truth? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just tell me what's going on in your phone. I do not. Have I am such I'm it? such
1: a Luddite. That being said, I'm very intrigued by a new app that my husband has that does something very similar to Snapchat where it takes a picture of you and then it morphs your face into different versions based on sort of idealized females, Whoa. idealized males, old people, young people. You know, it's, it's yeah. all over the place. Snapchat does that
0: too. It can age your face. It makes you look like a beautiful baby with flowers in your hair. All these different things. Is, is that
1: your favorite one?
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. My favorite one, I think I look like a bee. And it's like you have a very small mouth and, and antenna. Adorable. So what these apps all do, they have to do, is map your face and understand which are your eyes, where's your nose, and understand a little bit about head position and those kinds of things. But they're actually not super good at it because they've been working from a pretty small data set up until this point. So let's talk about this new research.
1: So as you said, when computers process faces, they use these 3D models that represent an average face. Now, the model um, uses input from hundreds of faces, and those are typically white adults. Um, They also use a set of common measurements that are typical of that group. But all that scanning and measuring used to have to be done by hand. Now there's a new automated method that can incorporate a much broader spectrum of humanity to come up with a more customizable model. First, an algorithm automatically labels the tip of the nose and other points on a set of facial scans. Then another algorithm lines up all the scans according to those points and combines them into a much more robust model. Finally, a third algorithm detects and removes bad scams, kind of gets rid of the outliers and the bad apples. Um, but because this process is now automated, researchers can incorporate far more faces than in the past. In this case, those 10,000 faces that you were talking about, which are all uh, demographically pretty diverse. And where did they get all those demographically diverse faces. So believe it or not, the scans were done by a team of plastic surgeons who are trying to improve reconstructive surgery. They found that their new model not only worked better for different races, but it also worked better for different ages.
0: Hmm. So what else might it improve besides Snapchat? The researchers have already
1: trained another artificial intelligence program with this model to turn 2D snapshots into accurate 3D models. The method could be used to recreate the mug of a criminal suspect caught on camera at a different angle, or it could flesh out what he or she might look like in 20 years. And getting back to the surgery angle, it could even help plastic surgeons figure out what your new nose should look like, should you happen to need one, given what the rest of your face looks like.
0: Now we have a story on spying with Wi-Fi. This is not about snooping on unsecured Wi-Fi hotspots. This is about using a router to make a hologram of the inside of a room where the router is. So taking kind of a holographic picture of the inside of a room. How would this work, Catherine? So this isn't
1: your typical hologram, at least not the Princess Leia variety. It's a 2D image that scientists make by pummeling an object with Wi-Fi signals and then using two receivers to map out the location of the object. In this particular experiment, scientists placed a Wi-Fi transmitter in a room behind an aluminum cross. They then placed a standard Wi-Fi receiver in front of the cross and moved it slowly back and forth they placed a second stationary receiver a few meters away. By measuring how long it took for the signal waves to hit both of the receivers, they could map out the
0: location of the object. So this isn't tapping into the data and the Wi-Fi, it's just using it to kind of sound out any structures in the room or even the structure of the room.
1: Exactly. In principle, you could even do this from the outside of a room. But you'd have to know what other objects might be in the room that could interfere if you're doing it from the outside. Even metal studs in the walls could reflect the radio waves of the transmitter.
0: This might not be feasible for spying on people, just considering the distances involved in this experiment. Um, What other kinds of things could be done with stray Wi-Fi signal?
1: Yeah, so the spying thing, you might call it at this moment, a mission impossible. (laughs) Um, But if you know what objects are already in a room, it could work for other tasks. Scientists have even suggested installing Wi-Fi sensors in warehouse ceilings to make holograms that can better track products labeled with radio frequency identification tags. Um, And others are developing simpler ways to use stray Wi-Fi signals to track the movement of people inside buildings. So be careful what excuse you use the next time you're late for a meeting.
0: Isn't there already a lot of Wi-Fi? I mean, is this going to be more layers of the same kind of signal all around us?
1: Yes, and it is only going to increase. But scientists are suggesting that as that happens, it will be used less and less for communication, the kind that you and I are used to, and more and more for the kind of detection that these wannabe spies are working on.
0: Last up, we have one more technology story, this one on using artificial intelligence to predict Supreme Court decisions. Like a lot of other AI studies, this one involves training a computer on a big data set and then asking it to find patterns in the data. What were the data in this case, Catherine? Scientists use one of the biggest data sets
1: they could find, more than 225 years worth of information from something called the Supreme Court Database, an online resource that tracks every case argued before the Supreme Court since 1791. They looked at 16 aspects of every vote cast by every justice, including the name of the justice, the term, the issue, and the court of origin
0: for each case. Based on the patterns pulled out by the AI, how good was it at predicting decisions? So the bot in this case, which used a
1: machine learning statistical model called a random forest, processed all that data I just mentioned for the years 1816 to 2015. It started with the very first year and tried to find associations between the data points and how individual justices voted. It then predicted the outcomes of each case. Then researchers fed information about the actual outcomes to the AI, and it was able to learn from its mistakes. It did this sequentially for every single year in the study. When it was done, It was retested, and it correctly predicted more than 70% of the court's 28,000 decisions (laughs) and nearly 72% of the justices' 240,000 votes. Okay,
0: so that sounds pretty good. But how do people who know a lot about courts fare, what kind of predictions do they make?
1: So even legal experts are only about 66% accurate at predicting Supreme (laughs) Court cases. Other studies have used AI to predict votes, but none of them ask the same questions with the same scope as this latest study.
0: This even bests, you know, some of the other predictions based just purely on the biases of the court.
1: That's right. Um, I think if you look back over 35 terms of the Supreme Court, they tend to reverse the decisions of lower courts in 63 percent of all cases.
0: Um, Let's talk about future cases now. This is all trained up on the past, but the judges change and our country changes. So this has been tried on the past. What will this AI be able to tell us about things heading into the courts now or in the next decade? So
1: obviously, this is not going to be some sort of a crystal ball. But as with any prediction tool, people outside the lab are going to want to use this. (laughs) We're talking lawyers and even bankers. Um, Investors could bet on companies that might benefit from a predicted ruling. And lawyers could decide whether to take a case to the Supreme Court based on their chances of winning. They might also plug different variables into the model to forge their best path to a Supreme Court victory, including which lower court circuits are likely to rule in their favor.
0: Okay, what else is on the site this week, Catherine? We have a story about the world's
1: smallest race cars and another on plant seeds that could survive interplanetary travel. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on primate research labs in Mauritius and a breakdown of how science fares in the latest U.S. budget deals. Thanks, Catherine.
0: Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matasik is an online editor for our daily news site. This week's episode is brought to you by Masters of Scale you might have heard of reed hoffman he's a legendary silicon valley investor and entrepreneur who co-founded linkedin everyone in tech goes to him for advice on how to make something huge he has a new podcast called masters of scale in each show reed talks to famous founders about what really happens as companies grow from zero to a gazillion guests include famous founders like mark zuckerberg of facebook Eric Schmidt of Google, Reed Hastings of Netflix, Kara Goldwyn of Hintwater, Bill Gates. Well, I think you probably know who Bill Gates is. There are also cameo appearances by Nobel Prize winners, liquor store owners, Hall of Fame sportscasters, because, well, just because. The stories you'll hear on Masters of Scale are always honest, always useful, and often pretty funny. No jargon, no posturing. The show is a lot like Reed himself. It's funny, fast, and unexpected. He always makes you rethink what you thought you knew. Oh, and the guests in the show are 50-50 gender balanced, which is refreshing for a tech show. Subscribe to Masters of Scale in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you love to listen. As a recent parent, this is something I've considered a lot. How can you tell when a nonverbal being, like a baby, is feeling pain? I've spent nights wondering if my kid's throat was hurting because she gave me her cold and my throat hurt. It seems likely, but she can't talk. Well, she couldn't talk at that point, so there's no way to know. This is, of course, also very important in a clinical setting Caroline Hartley and colleagues have come up with a way of potentially extracting this information right from the brains of infants. so Caroline, thank you so much for being here.
2: Hi, Sarah, Thanks for inviting me to talk to you today and why don't we start with what are what are the clinical
0: implications of not being able to know about pain in infants?
2: Yeah, so as you touched on in your introduction there, the main problem is really that babies can't talk, and so It's very difficult for doctors and nurses to work out whether they're in pain. If you or I were in hospital, then the doctor would be able to ask us, are you in pain? And if we were, they could find out um, where we were in pain and also how intense that pain was. And if they gave us some pain medication to relieve the pain, then we'd be able to tell them whether it was working or not. What in nine babies, when they're born, will receive some kind of hospital care? And we know that in babies who are receiving intensive care when they're born, they have an average of 10 painful procedures a day. And this can be even higher in the youngest and sickest babies. So they're receiving a very high burden of pain, which is essential for their medical care. And yet it's very challenging to know when a baby is in pain. And then to
0: give them a medication that might alleviate that has its own challenges.
2: Yeah, exactly. Because um, in order to find out whether that's working, then you need to be able to know whether they're in pain or not in the first place. And also, you can't just assume that babies are small adults. And so... The pharmacodynamics, for example, might be different in babies, which means that drugs might not work in the same way as they do in adults.
0: Mm -hmm. So how do we measure this now? I mean, obviously, we're doing these procedures and we are sometimes and sometimes pain relievers are administered to babies. How do we measure pain in them at this point?
2: So babies in hospital will have um, physiological measures being routinely monitored. So if we do something painful, we might see that their heart rate increases, for example, or their oxygen saturation drops. And we can also look at behavioural measures. So we can look at whether the baby cries after we've done a painful procedure to them. Or do they have a change in facial expression? For example, um, they might have a, a brow bulge or an eye squeeze, which are characteristics that are thought to be related to pain. Um, But we also know that these measures aren't necessarily specific to pain. So babies will cry and change their facial expression if they're hungry or they need their nappy changing, for example. (laughs) And so we need to look at um, other ways in which we can identify pain in infants as well.
0: Let's move on to your method then. You used electrodes applied to the outside of the head to measure brain activity during different treatments. What were these treatments and what kind of responses did you see?
2: We think that looking at brain activity is a useful way to understand whether a baby is in pain. And we studied a total of 72 babies whilst they were having painful procedures. So in most cases, this was a um, blood test done using a heel prick. And we recorded their brain activity during this medically required blood test. And we compared that to if we touched the baby's foot or if we flashed a light or played a sound to them. And because we could compare the brain activity across these different stimuli, we were then able to find a pattern of pain-related brain activity.
0: So one of the things you were trying for here was to find a template which you could kind of say, here's a standard measure that if you see this in a different infant, Here is what they're experiencing or they're feeling pain. So once you got that template, what about adding in a pain reliever into the experiment? What effect did that have on the baby's responses with respect to this template?
2: Yeah, so here we characterized a template of pain-related brain activity, as you said, and we wanted to be able to validate that in a number of different ways. And one of the ways we validated it was to look at a pain relief. Um, This was local anaesthetic, which babies were having applied anyway prior to a blood test. And this is a gel which goes on your skin and then numbs the area of the skin. And we found that it did significantly reduce the pain-related brain activity compared with when we applied the painful stimulus to an area of the skin which had not been treated with the local anaesthetic.
0: One thing I thought that was interesting about uh, reading the study was that a lot of the babies didn't have a facial expression or even necessarily a cry when they were experiencing painful stimuli. Were you expecting that?
2: So we have seen that in previous studies, and other people have seen that as well, that around 40% of babies uh, don't make a facial expression response to a a stimulus like a blood test, and we don't really know why that's the case. We would hope that by looking at brain activity in more detail, we might understand why they don't respond. It might be, for example, that they just don't have enough energy to respond or mount a facial expression response.
0: Hmm. What would this kind of reading be useful for, uh, would this happen in, say, a pediatrician's office if someone were bringing their kid in for just a a wellness
2: visit? That's a really interesting question. And I think it would be ideal, eventually, to particularly in babies that are in hospital, um, be able to identify an individual baby when they're in pain. Unfortunately, our measure at the moment was validated um, in a at a group level, and so we can't use this measure to look at individual um, babies and identify whether they're in pain. We think the most important use, perhaps, is to um, test pain relieving drugs, and that's because these Drugs previously have been tested using things like facial expression, which as I've previously described, um, have certain limitations. And so we think that perhaps combining it with facial expression measures as well and measures of physiology, so changes in heart rate, then we might be able to get a better composite understanding of how these pain relieving drugs are um, changing the way infants might respond and then be able to better test whether these drugs are effective, and also what doses we should use for these drugs.
0: Is there another way to validate this? Will we ever truly know that, the, that a baby is experiencing pain? I mean, just like us, there's kind of a limit to what we can understand about other people's experiences, even those that can talk.
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. Pain is a subjective measure, and so ultimately the only person who can really know whether you're in pain is you, And so because we can't ask babies, then we may never really know whether they're in pain. But we think that using these brain activity measures and also combining them with changes in physiology that you can see and um, facial expression measures will build a better understanding of how babies respond to pain and also be able to understand how this changes with their development.
0: Okay. well, uh, Caroline, thank you so much for talking with me.
2: Thank you very much, Sarah.
0: Caroline Hartley and colleagues write about detecting pain in infants in this week's issue of Science Translational Medicine. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aans.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps. Or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.